this is Castle One. Race officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the Welcome back, podcast listeners. It's great to have you along. Back with John and Macbeth for part two of our chat. As usual, if you haven't already listened to part one, I strongly advise you give it a listen. Amongst other things, Jono's story about his transition into the sport of sailing is a must-listen tale. It involves a fridge, a kayak shop, and Sir Peter Blake, all true. Give it a listen. Before we get going, you'll have heard in part one how Jono's journey in the Cup started back in 2000 in Auckland. The Cup was being sailed in IACC monohulls, the last traditional non-foiling monohulls to appear at the Cup. And his career has seen him sail in some of the craziest yachts the Cup's ever seen. We ended part one talking about the 90-foot Deed of Gift yachts. So pick up the Cup here as Jono prepares for the 2013 San Francisco Cup. Jono hasn't just sailed in the America's Cup, though. So we start part two with a quick chat about some offshore maxi sailing, during which we hear a rather chilling tale. I had forgotten about the incident Jono tells us about, and I have to say my initial reaction may sound a little flippant. No life jacket, no EPIRB. Jono wasn't even wearing shoes. He tells the story in a rather laid-back way, but there's nothing casual about it. He was incredibly lucky, sailing on a boat packed with accomplished sailors. It is a precautionary tale with a happy ending. But as my new offshore sailing partner, Dee Kafari, repeatedly states, safety is no accident. Jono won't mind me saying this story sets a very bad example of safety at sea. Before all of that, though, if you're enjoying what you hear, then please do head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's easy to use, I promise, and your support is really appreciated. It allows us to stay ad free and to keep on delivering these uninterrupted interviews. If you've supported us already, then a huge thanks. If not, give it a go. It's super simple. Right. Let's get going. We resume our chat with Jono as we digress slightly into his non-cup sailing antics before picking things up in San Francisco. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Jono Macbeth. By the time I came out, the boat was just completely gone and, and I was alone there in, in, the, uh, in the Mediterranean. Watch out, boys. You look out for your mates here. The sound of the wing breaking up around you was just horrendous. We've talked so far about the cup, Jono, but you've done plenty of other sailing, haven't you? Especially earlier in your career. What else were you sailing on? When we, when you started around the ISCC boats and the monohulls, you know, the traditional thing was to go off and, and do maxi boat sailing, um, match racing, and, and, and really hone those skills. Uh, off on the on the off season, you know, and guys, especially when you're sailing out in New Zealand, you would, um, you know, you'd finish sailing up in in April, and then come up to Europe and and sail all the way through to November, 
go back to New Zealand and, and start up the campaign again. So I did a lot of sailing on, um, on Maxis and a lot with Neville Crichton, who, uh, who had the shockwave um, boats, which, you know, we went through quite a few different versions of those. And uh, that was a, you know, great boat to sail on and, and always, you know, just, just a little bit different from the, the match racing that you're doing on the, uh, in the America's Cup. It's not always that easy getting by offshore, is it? I mean, Alfa Romeo was a, a big yacht, but you'd not been sailing that long, <laughs> did you know? I mean, how did you, how did you go into your first fast night race? Probably with my eyes shut a little bit, if I'm honest, you know, like, because um, you, when you, you are match racing and, you know, in, around the cans and inshore, it's, you know, it's a, it's different, you know, because things are very structured. And then all of a sudden you're going offshore and, and it gets, it's different, you know. And you do, you know, there's, you do need to learn your sea miles and understand, you know, where, what you can and can't do at, at different times of night. And, and you need it to kind of really look after yourself. And I, um, you know, in the end, I, I ended up around about 10,000 nautical miles, which I don't think is that much in the grand scheme of things people have certainly done a huge amount more but you know offshore sailing is one of those amazing things where you where, where, where you can just see stuff that you don't normally see in everyday life and I think that's that's really special you know you see more sunrises and sunsets when you're sailing offshore than I think you do at any other time of your life and um, you know you see some incredible you know what nature's all about and 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 what pristine oceans can really look like and uh and obviously things can you know go horribly wrong which is i think where you're getting to <laughs> you did have a, a bit of a scare didn't you with alfa romeo talk to us about that what happened there i mean i'm right it was a couple of years later perhaps in the middle sea race yeah exactly uh we had been and i'm trying to i was actually trying to remember what year it was the other day and i and i couldn't I couldn't put my finger on it, but I think it was somewhere around 2005. And we had been actually a pretty light air uh, middle sea race. And the whole way around, as the uh, crew forward of the mast like to do, we gossip up there and we were actually talking about whether we would uh, be going, uh, pulling out of the race because it was taking too long, you know. And anyway, of course, Neville would have never done that anyway because he had his eyes firmly set on winning that race. And on the last night, um, we were tracking a, a storm system and, and one of the local guys on the boat was going, oh, this, is, this will hit us, you know. Anyway, I'd gone down off watch and kind of, you know, you got the all hands on deck. And so I jumped out of my bunk <clears throat> and I was just in my cellar pets had no uh, boots on and ran up on, on deck and we had up the uh, the light air code zero, which, you know, three or four of us filled up. And then it, by the time we filled it up, and the, the, that zero kind of had a, a range of up to about five to seven knots. And so the time we filled it up, it was blowing 20. And so it had really come in. It was pitch, pitch black. I remember that so clearly, you know, like a, it would gone from this beautiful night just to one of those deep, dark, inky black, you know, Mediterranean nights. And so uh, we filled it up and then, you know, we all ran up onto the foredeck and we're just doing a bareheaded change. We're just trying to get get it out of the sky. 
And I was um, two or three guys from the front and, you know, so the first kind of zig kind of got laid down. And I remember I had a bear hold on it. I was just hanging on to the sail for dear life. And, you know, we were off on a, um, you know, probably an undesirable angle for the guys up on the bow. And, you know, the boat was probably doing 25 knots, you know. It's a big, powerful boat. It doesn't take much for it to get going. And um, anyway, because of the, you know, the apparent wind that came over the boat so quickly that the sail flogged. And I remember hearing the guys behind me go, watch out, boys, she's going to go. And I was like, what are they talking about? I've got such a good grip on the sail, it's going nowhere. And lo and behold, I just left the boat um, as because I was, you know, holding on and I should have let go like everybody else did, you know. And anyway, so I found myself because, you know, the halyard was down a bit. Uh, you know, you you end up in the water about ten feet away from the boat, and then it comes swinging back in, and I'm hanging onto the sail, being dragged along backwards. And uh, I remember looking up at at Stu Bentley, the the waffler, and he's just staring down at me as if to say, "What are you doing in the water?" I was like, "I agree. What am I doing down here?" And um, and then at that stage, I go to grab the gunnel. You know, I was just going, crikey, I've, I've probably got one shot at this. And, you know, I was never going to get it. You know, it was way, way too high for me. Did that. My salopettes filled up with water under the sail and pop up probably 20 feet away from the boat. And, you know, the boat's gone. I was doing 25 knots. And I just remember, wow, that's, that's, that's moving in a big hurry. And then the next thing that happened, unfortunately, is because my cellar pits filled up with water, I just sunk. And so I had to kick all that off underwater, kind of came up for air, and then um, by the time I came up, the boat was just completely gone, and, and I was alone there in, in, the, uh, in the Mediterranean, which is disturbing, to say the least. But it was a really interesting time, because you've kind of got, you've only got two options at that stage. You can panic and use up a lot of energy or you can you know calm yourself down and you know just go rightio they will come back and um you know hopefully things work out for the best and, and i remember i had a good old panic attack and then i just went no no come on it's, this is this will be all right you know got the man overboard buttons and all that kind of stuff and and they'll come back to you and so after about 15 minutes they um they turned around and they start coming back and I can see the riding light I'm going okay this is going to be fine and heading straight towards me and when they're about 50 meters away they started veering off going to the position where I fell off the boat and because the waves were so big now and the the wind was so strong I drifted quite a bit to leeward a lot faster than they thought and that's when I panicked I was like oh they don't know where I am and so I waited until they were the closest angle I thought they're going to get to me and I just started screaming as loud as I can and you know you'd think on a boat of that size and with the technology there they they would have something pretty cool to find somebody who had been lost overboard but in reality they all had dolphin torches you know like <laughs> where were the torches and they were just shining them around the ocean and by luck they uh they picked me up and, and the boys reckoned I was out of the water up to my waist you know? <laughs> and um so yeah and so I, you know, after a little bit of a kerfuffle, I got back on board. And um, actually, then I went downstairs and I made a, um, you know, you go into a little bit of shock and you want to be around people. So I was like, okay, boys, I'll make you a cup of tea. 
and um, I just managed to boil the kettle and get everything you know laid out and the boat was laid over on its side by you know the the pure front which was 70 knots so gosh if they hadn't found me when they did I, there was there was no way they would have found me after that so yeah oh my goodness I feel, <laughs> I, I I feel a panic <laughs> just thinking about that so you're in the water with obviously no life jacket no epurb no no torch no nothing and there's some really good lessons for young sailors there and it's it's funny I, I've I haven't really spoken about a huge amount but I, when I have it comes back to consequences and actually I feel pretty guilty not for myself but actually the danger I put the rest of the crew in and the consequences of your actions of you know coming up on deck thinking oh she'll be right I didn't have my sea boots on I didn't put my life jacket on um and that that could have been really bad for a lot of people you know because actually I put the whole crew in risk because they were now trying to maneuver this really big boat to try and find me and there was no real reason for it it's um so yeah that's offshore sailing for you. It's it is one of those again. It's a different part of our sport and one that doesn't naturally cross over. I don't think from you know match racing to offshore to to even catamaran sailing at times. Did it put you off offshore sailing? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, it didn't. It makes it makes you better, doesn't it? Because it makes you think. It actually makes you more aware of what could go wrong and so I think it just you just become a better sailor for it it's a tough lesson to learn and, and a silly one but there you go oh I don't want to talk about that anymore <laughs> <laughs> I sail offshore double-handed it, it, it's sort of the it's the worst case scenario we're not going to talk about that let's get back to Cupland Jono um things were getting pretty exciting again by the 2013 Cup in San Francisco, you stayed with Oracle. Things were progressing fast, weren't they? It felt like a real development race. The boats were to be 72 foot long. What was the feeling in Oracle as rumours from New Zealand were that the Kiwis were running a fully foiling package? Well, I think, again, you know, this is an amazing, this was an amazing time in our sport. It's changed completely. And it, it did feel like a different sport altogether. You know, we'd gone from, you know, back in 07, these these mono hulls and, you know, yes, we'd gone off and done the the of gift in between, you know, Valencia and, and San Fran, but here we were and, and basically purpose-designed match racing catamarans that, you know, as, as you know, you saw, um, as we all saw, you know, Ling, uh, New Zealand took into foiling straight off the bat and you know what the it, it was it was a really interesting time you know because we were learning to sail our 72 in San Fran Bay which is you know anyone who sailed there is just it, it's on it's, it's an I'm not going to say nasty place it's just a very intense place to sail unforgiving very unforgiving is a great way of putting it and um so it was it was amazing it was it was the wild wild west of you know of of sailing at that time especially you know as we developed these these big boats and like you say in New Zealand we were off foiling around and and we were seeing this footage coming out of New Zealand and almost in a little bit of you know 
disbelief. But also, again, I think you you look at your opposition and you, you learn from them, but at the same time you've got your head down and you're going, rightio, we're down this path. And, and a, a lot of our boat, I think, was you know, optimised to, to winning, which is effectively what we saw in the end. And, you know, we were probably a little bit too extreme right at the beginning. And, you know, I think Team New Zealand probably, they started at the other end of the spectrum and, and, and we converged there in the middle of, you know, the regatta essentially and, and then crossed over a little bit. Eventually. So, eventually. Talk us through those pioneering days on San Francisco Bay with the wing on the AC-72, you know, learning, as you say, learning to sail in the, one of the most unforgiving places on the planet. Well, yeah, exactly. And we, we didn't do an, a fantastic job of it, to be fair, did we? What was it, day, day seven or day eight, we, we pitch-polled. And, um, you know, again, you know, we were, we were learning to run before we had probably could walk but that's also kind of probably uh you know that that's san fran for you isn't it because you go out sailing there and you are in 25 knots just about every single day and i do remember the day we you know we capsized as i'm sure a lot of people do so vividly it was you know it was it was blowing you know that the tide was running and on top of all of that we we had these you know, these straight owl foils in the boat that we were struggling to control. We just didn't have the control systems like they had or they have now. And we've done a couple of laps around Alcatraz and I'd already been on the cockpit floor because that was my safety, go-to safe place. I'd, just, <laughs> I'd fall to the ground and hang on to the cockpit. And um, the trouble was we were getting too much lift out of the foils, as I recall, and the boat would launch up out of the water and then we'd do these massive sideways kind of slides and then it'd crash back down and then, you know, Jimmy's trying to get control of the boat again and, you know, things were just moving so quickly. And um, so we'd done a couple of these laps of Alcatraz and, and things, things were pretty hairy. And so as we came back around the bottom, they were having a chat about what we should do next. And... You know, there's a lot of backwards and forwards going on and, and, and good discussions because, you know, if you just go in every time things get a bit difficult, especially with a new boat and, you know, like when things are getting tough, you'll just, you'll never get through anything. So, you know, you've got to, you know, take advice from everybody. And then in the end, the call was, okay, hang on, we need to go in because, you know, we don't have a good grip on this. The conditions are getting pretty extreme. Um, come on, let's go home. Now, unfortunately, at that stage, we were, I think we were just past the, the top of Alcatraz and the only way to get home and, is to bear away and, um, and to get out of there. And, and so we, you know, we start the, the bear away and we're trimming on the main and, and there's this, you know, there's acceleration kick as everything kind of attached. And I was like, whew, that's a good one. And then we trimmed it on again and it's just this really you know, slow, powerful bear away. And then it just kicked again. And, um, and I went, oh, that doesn't feel great. And I remember in that stage, Jimmy, quite, you know, I think it's not, not famously, but I remember him just clear as day going over the comms. Um, Watch out, boys. You look out for all your mates here. And I was going, what on earth is he talking about? And next minute, bang, the bowels go under. And I was second cockpit back with... Um, Rome Kirby and, and Joey Newton, and we just went underwater, 
you know, like the boat, we were just like the bowels were underwater and we were underwater for a wee while. What's a wee while? When your heart rate's that high, anything above a couple of seconds. But, you know, the, um, the, the, the boat, it just kept on driving down. And then you're up, she goes, and, it, you know, and you pop out of the water as the boat, as our, you know, the nose comes out and, and, and the wing goes into the water and we're over vertical. So everyone was kind of wanting to fall out of the cockpits and the sound of the wing breaking up around you was just horrendous. It was just like, what happens next? And I think a lot of us were expecting the main spar to break and that's when things get really dangerous as, you know, because the, the platform falls on top of each other. But, you know, very thankfully that didn't happen. But then it was a case of everyone, you know, getting off, getting off the boat, getting into chase boats, getting counted. And um, yeah, it was it, it was one of those you know things that you just never ever want to experience, and it wasn't there wasn't a remote bit of fun about it. And then after that, you have to try and clean up the mess, you know. And that, as we've all seen, it was again probably decisions made theoretical that you thought would work just just didn't work at all, and. And you're dealing with, you know, max currents and, and tidal flows and, and a lot of breeze. And unfortunately, the boat got swept out underneath the, you know, the bridge. And, you know, it, it took quite a bit of uh, to damage. But, you know, maybe in looking back at this, and, you know, I've never spoken to Jimmy about it or some of the other guys, but that could have been a, a really defining moment of that campaign that made everyone sit up and think, actually, you know, we need to beyond it. We, we nearly, we, we really need to make sure that our decisions from here on in are, are the right ones. And um, in the end, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a good campaign. It was a tough one. And it certainly wasn't easy. And, and oddly, the campaigns that have been the hardest have been the ones that I've done the best in. The fun ones never really seem to work out that well. It was a, uh, yeah, it was a crazy time. And I remember when we when we relaunched and we had made some modifications and stiffened up the boat, it felt completely different and a lot more controllable. But still, we had a long, long way to go at that stage. There was quite a few guys on that boat, John. I mean, the afterguard clearly had a lot on. And we've spoken to Jimmy <clears throat> Spittle about it, to Kyle Langford, to Ben Ainsley also about, you know, learning to sail these boats. What about for you guys? You're, you know, you're on the platform, doing your job, grinding away. How much trust do you have to have that they're going to get it right all the time? The guys at the back, you, well, you've got to put, <clears throat> you've got to put all your trust into them, but you've got to put all your trust into to everybody on the boat, don't you? You know, that's what being in a true team sport's all about is, is trusting your teammates and, and knowing that they, they'll make the best decision that they think they can make. And it's, you know, it's sometimes, you know, sometimes those decisions are right and sometimes they're not right. You know, sometimes they just get it wrong. But again, you've just got to accept those decisions that, okay, well, that's what they decided to do and they've got a reason for that and, and, and get on and do your job. But I think that that's... In these in these big team sports, that's what it's all about. It's about doing your job as as well as you can do, and and understanding that everyone else is doing that around you as well, and and not interfering in something that's 
that's you've got nothing to do with because that just becomes noise and and then if you're actually having an input into you know something that you shouldn't do that you're not doing your job as well as you should do so you know it's um and that and that went from the you know the the mono hulls all the way through to the catamarans but i guess you know the the big change for you know all of the crew on you know the catamarans is how athletic it got all of a sudden you know we used to call ourselves sportsmen but <laughs> no, <laughs> we really weren't. And then all of a sudden we're, we're thrust into this world and, you know, the evil uh, hydraulic accumulator turned up and and you're, you're pumping oil around the boat and, and it, it, the sport was completely different in that respect. You know, like you went, you know, and, and luckily enough, I, you know, the position I was in was split kind of 50-50 between actually, you know, trimming the wing on so you could feel you know, what was going on to, you know, grinding oil, which, you know, if uh, if anyone hasn't done it, I promise you it's not that enjoyable looking at a light and just going, I need to get that, you know, that pressure up to uh, 90% before the next manoeuvre. I suppose what I was getting at was the guys in the back now had an added responsibility because actually it's potentially quite dangerous. And it wasn't long after that, of course, that tragically Andrew Simpson lost his life and Artemis broke up out on the bay. If you look back now, obviously just within your team at Oracle, how naive do you think everyone was to the dangers of sailing at this level? Yeah, well, I, obviously I think we, you know, we, we definitely were, you know, we, we weren't, we were we were learning a new sport, like I, I said before, and and so after the um, you know the capsize that we had, I think that gave everyone a you know a good shake up, and I remember all of a sudden the safety protocols got stepped up hugely, and you know we did have processes that were put in place, and you know we spoke about you know how to write a boat or, or when not to write it, and and I think it actually went through every aspect of the team you know I remember even you know lifting a wing and, and there's some pretty horrific footage of other teams you know where the wings got out of control and people were flying around and you know these there, there weren't many aspects of these boats that weren't really dangerous and so it was just a good wake-up call for everybody that actually you know we do need to to take this seriously and 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 make sure that you follow you know, the procedure and, and what had been put in place because when things go wrong, it went wrong really quickly. You were up against the wall and it was fight or, or go home. The Modern America's Cup is full of some pretty big players and some pretty amazing regattas. Let's talk about AC34, the much-discussed San Francisco Cup. We've spoken to plenty of protagonists on this podcast, but Jono, I wonder from your perspective, what was that like going 8-1 down against Team New Zealand, one race away from defeat? As a grinder, is there anything you can be doing, anything that you debrief on, or is it all just within the afterguards? And how the races are being lost, how involved in all of that were you guys on the handle? Well, yeah, what this this was one of those amazing, amazing regattas. It, it was something, you know, that I certainly hadn't been involved in, and I don't suspect many people 
before me had been or, or will after, you know, it was, it was incredible. And it started off that, you know, we, we had this, the build up and we're not going to go into that, but it was such a relief to actually get out racing. And I remember the, the first weekend and even though things hadn't, you know, gone incredibly well, it was still, I was just going to, this is just so much fun. You know, we're out there, we're racing, and as as a team, you go in there and you're debriefing, and you debrief together. You know, and you're you're trying to figure out, you know, what's, you know, what's going well, what's not going well, where your strengths, where your weaknesses are. And I think from you know from a team perspective, you know, you're, you're all in it together. So, you know, whether you're in the afterguard or you're in the front of the boat, you've, you've got to do your job to the best of your ability because that's all anyone can ask of you. And, and that's what's really important. So I think, yeah, everyone's got their role to play. And, you know, you, you look at some of the, the, the early racing and, and we were having quite a lot of trouble tacking, you know. I think our upwind speed was you know, it was okay, but it was appalling when we tacked, you know, we were, we were just losing so much. And so, you know, you, that was something that we needed to change and we needed to change it in a pretty big hurry. Um, and, and also, um, you know, and, and then, you know, um, we had the setup of the boat and, and, and a few mode changes that needed to be made. And, uh, and that's when we, we called that lay day and, that's when the big changes really came about, you know, and, um, you know, obviously the big one, Ben came on board for, for JK. Um, but also the next day during the lay day, we went out there and we, we really practiced our mode, our upwind mode, um, and tried to, you know, we really started down this road of upwind foiling of basically having to, you know, bear away, build the speed up and, and then start coming back up on the wind, which sounds really basic now, but um, back then was this, jeepers, are you sure? This seems like we're going to give away quite a lot of ground. Um, and if it doesn't work, you're, you know, you've just, it's just a loss. Um, but tied into all of that was really the, you know, the um, increasing the camber down low and, and reducing the centre of gravity on the wing, which allowed us to up and foil with more stability. So again, you know, we went out there the um, following um, day after that lay day and, and we still didn't win. I, I, again, you know, the, the races kept on ticking away at us until it was, like you say, 8-1. And what an absolutely fantastic position to be in. I thought it was, um, I thought it was great, you know, and, and I'm not just saying that. I, I was having a ball, you know, and I think, everyone around us was as well. This was good fun. You know, like it was, you were up against the wall and it was, you know, fight or or go home. And the team really came together probably more than I think it ever had done in the last, you know, two or three years. It, it, we just gelled in every aspect. And from there it was, it was just a case of, I think, a culmination of really, you know, a great team that that just pulled it together at the right time. Talk about peaking at the right time. It was it was pretty impressive. So it was interesting. After um after that regatta, I 
I remember speaking to uh, some of my friends on Team New Zealand and they just went, God, that was tough, wasn't it? You know, because it was a long regatta. It went on for three weeks. And um, they go, you know, we're tired and we've got injuries. And I was like, no, what are you talking? Like I just, you know, we had this abundance of energy during the regatta. I remember quite clearly crossing the finish line and just going, I am exhausted. (laughs) And, And I think that was it. Because you, you know, I remember waking up every morning and just going, I've got to go to work. This is awesome. You know, we're going, this isn't, we get another day to try and fight back. And I think you carry that positive energy when you're on a roll like that. And uh, I guess they were experiencing the negative aspect of that, which must have been really difficult to deal with. What are your memories sailing out for that final day of racing, knowing it was all or nothing, having done so well to get to it all? It was... Well, exactly. It's, at that stage, it's, you know, I, I think anyone kind of in those really big sporting events and, and being involved in like a, a major sporting event is unbelievable. The, the atmosphere everywhere is, is just incredible. And it's, it's, you know, like I say, if you could you know, replicate that every time you race, I think you're certain to win. You know, like it, you just get this, you know, this incredible buzz and, and energy. Now, and I know that Jimmy's spoken about this already. You know, we're going, um, you know, you have this big hype and you go, come on, we're going to go out there and we're going to do it. And, you know, we know the process. We've just got to keep doing the same thing and, and we'll be okay. And, and lo and behold, you know, we're sailing and something falls out of the, out of the mast and the, um, and the warm-up. And I think it's a very well-told story that, you know, flap two, you know, hinge point was, you know, destroyed itself and I think the interesting thing there is that you know the, the shore crew came alongside where the chase boats there and they sent you know um Jeff Causey up the rig and he's fixing it and everybody on board just tried to pretend like everything was normal you know and we had you had two sets of you know guys on one on the lured and you know the afterguard up to weather and they're talking tactics and the guys down below were talking about you know um, you know what we're going to be doing and making sure that you know everyone is on the same page and at the same time carbon dust is blowing over and you can hear the grinder up the wreck and it was just like oh dear and at that stage though yeah, it's just about you know mental toughness isn't it you're just putting that aside and go oh well we can only control what we can control here and you know as uh, as I think as Je- uh, Jeff left the boat Jimmy said you know I'll what can we, uh, is there anything we can and can't do? And he goes, I'll oh, just go easy, you know, for the first five minutes. And, you know, we instantly bore away and we're doing, you know, 35 knots down the course. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was funny though. I did, didn't actually think about that until after the race. And, you know, so you, you go through and, you know, you, you're doing your race and you're just trying not to think of the finish. You're just going, but just got to focus in on what, you know, is the you know the next job, the next tack, and I remember we uh, we came along the final reach, and we only had you know ten or twenty meters to go, and uh, I was in a cockpit with uh, Joey Newton and, and Rome Kirby, and I, I look at Joey, who was a really good friend, and <laughs> he starts smiling, and I started smiling back, and Rome, the young one, he's going, "Stop it, you two!" <laughs> and I was going, "I think we're right. I think we're going to do it." Then just the elation as he crossed the line, I'll, 
I'll never forget that feeling. It's, it's amazing. And it'd been 13 years since the last, last time, uh, you know, I'd won the cup in a multi-challenge series, you know. So it, it, was, a, it was a special day for me, especially too, because that was the first time, you know, in my position I'd won in the team. And, and so it was, yeah, if you'd bottle that feeling. You and know. done it the hard way. I mean, the hard way, hadn't you? I mean, it it must have collectively as a team, it must have been extraordinary that win. Yeah, it it really was, and it was definitely, definitely not the easy route or the way you want to go about it. But it was, uh, yeah, it was it was great. I remember um, Johnny Wilkinson talks about that very famous World Cup they won in rugby, and he he made that drop kick. And then, you know, the final whistle goes and he, he goes, if I could just pause time at that moment, you know, everything would be complete. Because he knew that for, for every minute that passed from when that whistle go, the, the feeling would diminish of, of the, the victory and of winning. And I never really understood it until you're in that position. And he's dead right, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing feeling. And, you know, you can look back and later in life and you, you're still proud and you remember it. But that, that moment is of just God, we've done it, is, is amazing. From a career perspective, winning the Cup in Auckland must be up there. But coming back from such a defeat to win in San Francisco, where does that rank amongst your achievements, do you think? I think from, for me, you know, like the, the win in San Fran was kind of definitely the pinnacle it was it kind of probably the the culmination the peak of my career and a lot had gone into that you know physically and and you know and mentally and you know the skills that you'd learned along the way it it just all came together and it was you know like I say it was a tough campaign it was so tough it it's not your traditional team either it was quite a dysfunctional team and we'd had a lot of adversity and you know there'd been a lot of things that had gone wrong and so to to overcome all of that and just keep pushing and, and just knowing that if you just kept on working hard, you would get there. It was, you know, it was great. You'd beat Team New Zealand. And for Dolts, for Dean Barker, that was a tough loss, wasn't it? You'd left Team New Zealand after 2007. Can you explain that? There's very much a, a fortress mentality within Team New Zealand. You are in the team, you've left, you've sailed for other teams, beaten Team New Zealand even. So did that mean that's that then? Is, is the door shut for you and Team New Zealand? Describe how that is. It's, well, it's, it's funny. Like I said kind of earlier on, you, there is no friends and out on the water is there, you're, you're competitors and everyone at that level is a competitor so they completely understand but there were, you know, there's a lot of friends in that team and there still are a lot of friends and, you know, I think there's, you know, there's respect and, you know, it's, you know, it's tough. Like, I, you know, you saw those guys on the dock, you know, you go and shake their hands and you see the pain was everywhere and, you know, you don't, you don't want to see anybody like that, but there's nothing you can do about it because that's the sport and that's the game that you're in. Um, so, you know, and hey, they they came back pretty strong after that, if we're honest, and and look where they are now, and that that's life sometimes, isn't it? You know, and 
they, uh, you know, they're, they're all they're an incredible campaign and could have gone either way. But there's been some, you know, there's good rivalries there, you know, Oracle and Team New Zealand and Alingi Team New Zealand. It's the Modern America's Cup is full of some pretty, you know, big players and some pretty amazing regattas. Well, that cup in 2013, you won with Oracle in San Francisco, sailing with Ben Ainsley, of course. And shortly after that cup win, he was on the phone. What was your next big career move? Well, so after the... uh it's interesting, after Oracle and after that 2013 Cup, you, it's time really to take, a, to take a bit of a breath, isn't it, and, and have a look at where you want to go. And the boats were changing, you know, dramatically and you know, I was getting older. And you've got to be very careful in, in the sport, especially when it's changing like that, you know, like, it's, like my position wasn't in, as a helmsman or a, a tactician where you can, you know, eke out, a few more years as you know the boats became more physical you know age unfortunately does have a you know a pretty dramatic effect so Ben and I had actually spoken a little bit and you know San Fran and I don't think it was anybody was surprised that he had ambitions to run his own sailing team and and to do things the way he wanted to do and it was a um I think it was a bit of a natural progression you know during that um San Fran regatta I'd been taking on a little bit more of the sailing team manager role and, and working with Jimmy there and after the you know the, the the 2013 cup there was a lot of uncertainty about Oracle and, and which way it was going to go and so it just felt again like a time to to make another change and you know I thought what Ben was doing was you know super exciting and and who would turn down that offer. It all looked like a very viable cup contender. BAR back then, you know, you had some Formula One influence, you had a budget, a good cause, you won the World Series, of course. What was the feeling in the team as, as the cup approached? I think, you know, the, the great thing about, you know, BAR and, you know, and, and being in a, at a British team is there's so much history there. You know, and the overwhelming feeling from everybody in that team was, you know, we want to bring the cup back to Britain. And it's not a it's not a catchphrase, it's it's what everybody wants truly to happen. You know, and it would be amazing. It's like a fairy tale. You know, I'm not gonna it would be like England winning the football world cup again, you know, except it you know, in the sailing world it would be even bigger because it's the first time. And so as we approached, you know, we'd been in isolation down here um, in the Solent and so we didn't really have a true understanding of how dire our situation was you know we'd gone really well in the World Series so we knew that we could you know from a sailing skill ability we were you know we're just fine and so it was a uh, you know it was it was a tough time up in Bermuda we got up there and and we were clearly off the pace and the difficult thing with these boats is the lead time on a lot of the key components is so long that you're, you're, the dice cast you know a long time before race day and so it was a uh, yeah it was it was a tough end to a, a really good campaign it seems from the outside like you built a lot of test boats 
at VAR. <laughs> How hard was it getting a fully foiling 50-foot monohull race ready? And as sailing team manager, what sort of decisions were, were having to be made? Well, I think, again, that was the, you know, the, the, we were almost penalised for being off the, the mark too early because we, you know, we were quite a way into our first test boat when they changed the rules. And again, this comes down to, you know, making decisions, not your first mistake that you make, but potentially it's your, your second one that you, you really pay for. And so, you know, as we, you know, as, as, as that cut progressed, you're right, we, we probably just were too ambitious on what we did. And, and I guess there's probably, you know, a few shadows left over from that 2003 campaign now where I look and just go, gosh, we made, you know, the same mistakes again. And, you know, unfortunately, there's, like I say, there's, there was a lot of clever people and, and sometimes you, you just get it wrong. And, and it was certainly that was, that was the case. And, you know, as the, you know, as that campaign progressed and I guess, you know, my role within the team, you know, was to, to guide the sailors and, and, and try and, you know, push them in, in the directions which we were thought the right ones to go. But I think also, interestingly, we were seeing another big shift in, in the boats. And if we thought the, you know, the AC-72 was technical, these AC-50s were, you know, again, like you, you, you went to them, you're just going, well, back in the old days, you'd go, I'm going to go service a winch or, you know, like I'll work on the, you know, in the rigging department. You know, now it was hydraulics and computers, you know, like you were looking for people who, you know, could code and, and you know, were, you know, high level engineers. So I think this is, you know, the, the sport's going through some, some pretty significant changes at this time. And, you know, I'm not saying that's why we ended up where we did, but it's definitely a factor for, for what happened. You got to Bermuda and, and, as you said, I mean, pretty early, you could sense that, that you were off the pace. What was the feeling in the team at that point? How difficult was that time? Yeah, it was, it was it was tough. It was a, a tricky old time. No one likes to lose. Um, and also, too, there's a lot of people in the team who had come, you know, from winning teams. So all of a sudden to be experiencing that um, and maybe experiencing losses like that for the first time is, is, is tough. And I think also the teams that had been out in Bermuda, you had Oracle and Artemis and, and Team Japan, they, they learned a lot from each other and they were – you know, again, because we'd been in isolation a little bit, we probably didn't understand the, you know, what was really going to be important, you know, coming into Bermuda. And they had done so much racing and they understood how much energy was used and, and you know, how important it was to get up on the foils early and all those sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, it was certainly not an easy time. There was much chat after Bermuda about the New Zealand cyclists, wasn't there? <laughs> and I want to ask you this question. And while it's important to say that's not what won them the cup, I did want to ask, you know, as one of the sport's most experienced grinders, you know, a f you're a fully paid up member of the Grinders Union, Jonah. 
what was your thought or what was the thought amongst all of you? What did all the grinders all think about the cycler approach? Well, I think the, the interesting thing is, like you say, you know, there was a huge amount made about that. But I think you take the, cyc the cyclers in isolation, it didn't win, you know, but it did allow Team New Zealand to put so much more into their boat, which ended up as a package was incredibly, incredibly strong. Now, um, it wasn't a new idea either, though. This is the thing, and it was a really sensible idea. And, you know, we had talked about it, and I, you know, I'll put my hand up. I was one of the people who was just like, mm, don't think that's going to work. <laughs> you know, I can think of a thousand reasons. And again, you know, the sport was changing and, and you know, maybe – you know, I wasn't quick enough to to pick up on that. And I'm not saying that I was the sole reason that it didn't happen in any shape or form. But, you know, like, I think these are times where, you know, like you you need to adapt. And you've seen the good guys out there. And, you know, like you, you look at the helmsmen and, you know, you got Jimmy and Dean and, you know, Ben. These are guys that have crossed over and I've gone from, you know, slow boats to fast boats and, and they're still at the top. And, and I guess that shows how good they all really are. You know, they are the top of our sport. And I think that's a really exciting thing about, you know, these guys and this, this current bunch of sailors that are out there is that they are so adaptive and they think differently. And it's, uh, you know, it's exciting. That was a pretty cool cup in, in Bermuda. You, there was a lot of different ways of approaching the same problem. You know, you had... Artemis with a really unique drivetrain for, you know, their hydraulics. You had the Cyclors, you had Oracle with a more traditional but, you know, an incredible, um, you know, foil package. And it was, yeah, it was interesting. It was all changed after Bermuda with Ainsley's team. A new investor in Jim Ratcliffe, Ineos, of course. Grant Simmer came in. But in the build-up to Auckland, you left the team. How hard was that, Jono, the cup taking place in your hometown and suddenly you're not there? It's certainly, it's certainly not the, um, you know, not the end of the, my career that I was kind of hoping for. I guess everyone has that fairy tale dream. Um, so, yeah, well, it, was, it was really tough. But in fairness, it was the right time to, to get out. I think, again, you know, the sport had moved on and, and you for me, like I was the 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 physical um, attributes that these young guys have got are just phenomenal. You know, it's just it's just amazing to see how fit they are, how much power they can put out. And I just don't think there's any room on any team for somebody who's who's not at that level. And so it was, you know, it was a it's tough. It's always tough to watch, and um, but it's. You know, it was, it's good. And it led on to, to new and, and, and more exciting horizons for, for me at the moment. But I suspect it's, you know, I think many sportsmen probably go through that kind of reflective part of their careers, don't they, when, when they give up. And, you know, whether it's to, to watch an Olympic Games that you're not involved in or, or, you know, a World Cup final in rugby or football, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. And I think it's it's also you know it's funny as you as when you're earlier on in your career you look at you know the greats and you hear the story about Michael Jordan and how he you know he could never give up and he's going oh why 
Why would you not just give up? Enjoy it, you know, sit back, relax. When you're there, it's you can see why, you know, that, you know, chasing that that last cup, you know, chasing that last time you hear that, you know, that final gun go, that's that's powerful. It's it is a little bit like a drug and it there's there's nothing else like you know that feeling when you win a major sporting event it's incredible and so you do keep on looking for it looking back Jono, you've been on some incredible boats skippered by some absolute legends of the sport peter blake russell coots jimmy spiddle ben ainsley you even put up with me for a while <laughs> on the extreme sailing series I'm not pleased that you're laughing. Um, I think it's the other way around. That that is going back some. But who gets your votes in an all-time poll? The best skipper ever. Oh, I did not think you were going to ask me this question. (laughs) Um, I think they're all different. I'm going to be very diplomatic on this one. They all come with a different set of skills and and way they approach things. You know... um, and I can name, you know, positives and negatives about all of them. I think, you know, Russell had, he was incredible, you know, back in that 2000 Cup. He was, you know, so focused. And, you know, he he understood the entire package and he knew how to put it together. And, you know, there's no mistaking that's where and why he is where he is today. You know, he's, he's leading our sport now. But, yeah, the... You know, there's, you know, Dean, Jimmy, Ben, they, they all have different qualities, don't they? I don't even need to put those. I can see what you're doing and I'm not going to take the bait. <laughs> That's a terrible answer, John McBeth. <laughs> Come on, if, I, if you're to get on a boat tomorrow with one of them, who would it be? <laughs> Surely it would be you. <laughs> I somehow don't think that's true. I mean, John, as we said right at the very start, you're now at North Sales and a very different outlook, running the sustainability programme. How much of a challenge, how much of a change is all of that? Oh, a huge change. And it's an exciting change, though. And it was something that I've always been really passionate about. And I guess my, you know, my passion was really ignited in those BAR days, you know, because we had such a strong sustainability um, initiative that ran the whole way through that team and I thought it was fantastic to to see a sports team take that on and and to really promote it you know to to sponsors but also to the fans and and, and get it out there so I think with you know joining North Sales it's it's such a unique and exciting uh, company to be involved in you know like a now, the, the exciting thing for me is I'm still part of the sailing industry, but just far enough removed from it that, you know, it's not kind of like in my face all the time. But, you know, the challenges that we've got in the, the marine industry at the moment are, are pretty pretty vast and, and we can see the effects of climate change. And I don't think it's good enough for, you know, big companies just to sit back and go, oh, we'll tackle that, you know, next year or whatever. And, and that's what's exciting about North is there's this really – you know, uh, passionate, you know, vibe that's coming down from, you know, the management and, and they, they're wanting to make a change and they're wanting to do things better. So It, it doesn't always sit with good profit margins, though, does it? I mean, how much of a challenge is that, changing people's minds in the boardroom? 
it doesn't always have to be a you know a, a negative effect on the the profit margin you know and this is the it's just a change set it's just a, a different way of, of approaching things and I guess that's what we saw you know as we went from you know the you know the IACC boats through to the foiling boats it it was just a change, a change in mindset on how we sailed. And this is, I think, sustainability and is that's how it's going to have to be approached in, in the corporate world is, you know, what may have been the norm, you know, in the past is going to have to change if we're going to make, you know, strides to, to make this place a better place for, you know, the coming generations because, you know, we've got to make some pretty big significant changes if it's going to be as amazing as it is for us, you know, in the uh, in the future for our kids. John, you've had a, an incredible career, multiple cup campaigns, multiple cup lifts. It's been an amazing journey. What do you think that the young John and Macbeth would have thought back in that kayak shop if you told him what kind of career he'd have ahead of him? <laughs> I don't think I would have believed me. It's a, um, it's been a really privileged career, you know, and it's something I never, I never took for granted as I, I went along my journey. And I knew as a sportsman, you know, it's always going to end, you know, it can't carry on. And so I really tried to make the most of it along the way. And you're right, it's, it's been amazing. And I think the one thing that you, you have to do, and even, you know, as you, you know, for the young sailors out there, you, you just need to make sure you really enjoy those opportunities that you get and enjoy your success because you never know when the next one is and how far away it will be. Good advice. John Macbeth, it's been fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very wise words from the very accomplished multiple America's Cup winner, John Macbeth. Enjoy your success. But Jono, a big, big thanks for sitting down to record the podcast. I'm glad we made it happen. Thank you so much. You know, we love to hear from you. So let me know what you think. Like, review and subscribe on whatever platform you join us on. And if you've not done so, buy us a coffee if you've enjoyed the pod. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's easy to do and helps keep us free of any intrusive random ads. To Tim at Vertigo Films, a big thanks for all your hard work making the podcast happen. Tim, as ever, a giant thank you. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One. Race officer speaking. Speaking. Oh my God, on boundary up ahead. 35 seconds out. Okay, lower and faster here. Lower and faster here. Ho, ho, ho. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the line right there. Looking at 10-5, 42. Matching him on the boundary, yeah. Copy. This is Castle One standing by. Out.